pray with me? Indeed, Lord, that is our desire for you to be glorified, for any attention to be taken from us and all attention to be riveted on you, O Lord, that your name might be praised and honored as your word now is preached. We know that you are the one who is active in the preaching of the word, both in the heart of the preacher and in the hearts of the hearer. And so do a work that when we're finished today, we would all say that was only a work of our sovereign God. And we'll give you praise in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. So a bit of an unplanned theme has developed over the past number of weeks in, in the preaching. We're, we're, we're sort of in between our normal pattern. Our normal pattern is just to go through uh, a book of the Bible. I'll remind you, we've just finished the Thessalonian epistles. We've done both first and second Thessalonians. And in a few weeks, we're going to be taking a look at the book of Joshua This summer, we'll be going through the book of Joshua together. This summer and probably fall, uh, we'll be going through the book of of Joshua. But for now, as we we plan for and prepare for that series, I'm just exploring some texts that have been on my mind and in my heart recently. And though I, I didn't necessarily plan it, most of those texts have been dealing largely with the idea of Christian steadfastness, Christian stability. You see, I have been increasingly concerned for you. I've been increasingly concerned for this body of believers, for you as an individual, that you not turn away from the faith. And this is a common theme throughout the scriptures, throughout especially the the New Testament. We are called to, to be steadfast in our faithfulness in Acts 11, 23, he says that, they, that he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. We are to be steadfast in the work of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. We, we are called to be steadfast in the faith. Be watchful, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16. Stand firm in the faith. We're we're even to be steadfast in our freedom in Christ. Galatians 5. Stand firm, therefore, in your freedom. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Ephesians 6. We're to be steadfast against the devil and his attacks on us. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We're, we're to be steadfast in the faith of the gospel. Philippians chapter 1, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. It goes on. Colossians 2, we're to be steadfast in Christ. He said, I want to see your good order and your firmness of faith in Christ. To be steadfast in the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 3.8 Standing fast in the Lord. 
We're to stand fast against false teachers who are trying to entice unsteady souls. Second Peter says, and when we are particularly in a day and age where we're just being wave upon wave of false teachers are washing upon the, the shores of the church. We have critical race theory and, and the social justice movement and, and Marxism just continuing to seek to, 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 to uh, erode the shores of the church. And the Apostle Paul, I'm sure, was concerned for the Philippians much as I am concerned for you today that the Philippians not fall away from Christ, that they not turn their backs on the Lord Jesus Christ. We encountered it a few weeks ago when we began in Philippians chapter 3 and looked at how it is that we can rejoice in the Lord. And Paul wanted to tell us about rejoicing in the Lord. He said, because it's very helpful for you. It is important for your spiritual steadfastness. And you'll notice... By the time he gets to our text this morning, in Philippians chapter 4, and in verse 1, you'll notice that his mind even here is on Christian steadfastness. Look at Philippians 4.1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. What does he say? Stand firm thus, or stand firm thusly, in the Lord, my beloved. This term, stand firm, is an imperative verb. It's a command. Now, in chapter 4, especially verses 1 through 9, there are lots of commands, but there seems to be one major command. In other words, all of the other commands, all of the other imperatives here in chapter 4 seem to be situated around this or, or subject to this main command, this main verb of standing firm. The word stand firm means to hold your position. It's, it's got a military connotation. It means do not collapse. Do not turn back. Do not retreat. Do not yield to the temptation of sin. It means to persevere in the faith. And what I love about this verse is how it's situated. And the very first word gives us some interesting notes on this. He says, therefore, it means on the basis of what has just been said. It could easily, that word could easily refer us back to everything that he said in the letter up to this point. But I think specifically, it refers back to the way that he concluded chapter 3. In other words, the imperative, the command to stand firm is rooted firmly in what he just said in chapter 3. What did he just say in chapter 3? Look at verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, stand firm. In other words, this command to stand firm, to not turn tail and run, to not abandon the faith, is firmly rooted in three great realities. What are they? One, our citizenship. Our citizenship, he says, is in heaven. What does that mean? It means the place where one has official status. Brothers and sisters, do not turn from the faith because of your citizenship. You, as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, have an official status in heaven. Think about it. Your name is written there. 
Luke 10.20, rejoice in this, that your name is written in glory. Your inheritance is there. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4 tells you that your inheritance is laid up together with Christ. Your reward is there. Matthew 5.12. Your treasure is there. Matthew 6.20. Your Savior is there. I mean, don't turn away. Why? Because of your citizenship in heaven. Your official status. Your official status is there in heaven. Not only because of our citizenship, but because of our coming Savior. From it, we wait a Savior. Don't turn back because Jesus is coming. And I don't think it's going to be long. He's coming again. You're going to see him soon, brothers and sisters. So don't don't turn cowardly. Don't tuck your tail between your legs and run. Our citizenship, our coming Savior, and the conformity of our bodies to his glory. One day, all of this is going to be passed. And every pain and every sorrow is going to be wiped away. And more than that, our sin will be dealt with fully and finally so that we experience it no more. You see why he would say, stand firm. <laughs> Come on, it's, it's, it's like a leader out in front of the pack saying, it's just a little further. You go here and you're going to get this. This week I was with my family on, on vacation down in North Carolina. We have this place we love to go. It's a seafood buffet. And first of all, anything with the name buffet in it, I'm there. But I love when it has the word seafood and buffet together. It's great. And man, you know... Usually you wait for everybody else, but we get there and I just go and I grab a plate and I'm, I'm, I'm blazing the trail to the buffet and I come back with my, you know, my plate full up and they're like, look at that. Is all that up there? I say, yeah, if you just go up there, you get all that. Follow me. I'll show you the way. That's what Paul's doing. It's a lame uh, illustration, but it's on my mind. <laughs> Paul is saying, look, just ahead, you walk this way and here's what you're going to see. And that's where we're going today. That's the why. But here's the question. It's good to know why, but what you also need to know what? How? Well, how do you stand firm? I mean, it's good to say stand firm, but how do you do it? That's the question he turns to in chapter 4, verses 1 through 9, where he gives us six essentials to standing firm. Six essentials to standing firm. Let me read the entire text again, and then we'll look at it. Again, verse 1. Therefore, my beloved brothers, whom I love, love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true companion, help these women whom, uh, who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement, And the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true. Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with 
you. Six essentials to you and I standing firm in Christ. Standing firm in the faith. What are they? The first one is this. Unity in the church. Unity in the church. You need to know, brothers and sisters, that discord within the fellowship disrupts spiritual stability. Discord in the fellowship disrupts spiritual stability. I have often heard of spiritual shipwreck on the basis of church discord. There comes an issue in the church and there's some kind of split. There's some kind of fight. And what, do you, what happens to people often? Man, people get blown up. They, they, they spiritually get blown up in, in the midst of it. Maybe you've, you've experienced that firsthand. He begins here in chapter 4, verse 2. With talking about these two women, Yodia and Syntyche. Now, when I talk about church unity, you need to understand, I am not talking about that we all learn to dress the same way, that we all learn to talk the same way, that we all have the same haircut and whatnot. Rather, what he's talking about here is a harmony of mind. When he says in verse 2, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. It means to have the same mind. And this is a command that he has used very often in this letter. You know what was happening there in Philippi. Two women were not getting along with each other. And guess what? It had an effect on the church as a whole. Now, I want you to notice something. These women had worked together with Paul for the gospel. Now, I don't mean that they were pastors or preachers, but that somehow they were key to the work of the gospel together with Paul. He says further that their names are in the book of life. We're not talking about some spiritual lightweights here. We're not talking about non-Christians. We're talking about those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Their names are written down. They've been involved in gospel ministry, but guess what? It is possible for Christians to have disagreements. Right? It's possible for genuine Christians who love the Lord and who work for the gospel to sometimes be at odds with one another. And that can really affect the stability and steadfastness of the church. He says they are to be of one mind in the Lord. Now, what is this about? Well, let me tell you, it's the same thing that he was talking about back in chapter 2. Look at chapter 2 for a moment. Chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. The mind that he is referring to in chapter 4, verse 2, is the mind that he's referring to in chapter 2, verse 5. What is what? The mind of Christ. It is to not be a mind of selfish ambition or conceit. It is a mind that is to consider the interests of others. Now, you need to know that what was happening there in Philippi was not a doctrinal issue. The thing that was, that was disrupting the unity of the church, 
The thing that was going on between Yodia and Syntyche was not a doctrinal issue. It was an issue of opinion. They just weren't getting along. We know that because if it, if it were an issue of doctrine, you think the Apostle Paul would have just not said anything? Of course he would have said something and pointed it out. But he doesn't do that. They, there's an issue of, of opinion. And they just weren't getting along. That's what we're talking about here. Maybe, maybe there were some issues of complaining. Chapter 2, verse 13, uh, 14. Complaining issues. They were, they were complaining about one another. And Yodia and Syntyche just weren't getting along. There was a, it was a major issue of preference, a major issue of opinion. And he, he begs them, he entreats them, he, he urges them, he implores them to come to an agreement, to get your mind not on, well, let's settle for Yodia's way, not on let's settle for Syntyche's way, but let's get our mind on the Lord. Let's think like the Lord Jesus Christ. So much so that he says, I ask you also true companion. Now, in verse 3, he might be talking to one person in the church. Imagine the letters being read amongst the church. And maybe it's this true companion. Or maybe the word true companion is actually a proper name. Maybe he's one of the elders in the church. I urge you then. We'll just call him uh, Ziggy. That's kind of what the name sounds like. I urge you then, Ziggy, help these women. Or maybe some think maybe he's just talking to the whole church. Hey, everybody, everybody in the church, help Yodi and Syntyche to come to an agreement together. To not be seeking selfish glory or conceited ambition, but rather looking to lay down their lives for a greater cause. Listen. It's possible in the church for genuine Christians who love the Lord and are work at work for the gospel to be at odds, to have differences. The worst thing you could possibly do would be to ignore it. You know, that's what you try to do. I'm just going to act like it doesn't exist. you got to deal with them. Don't just drop out. Don't just drop off. That's the normal fleshly way to deal with things. That's the way normally fleshly of dealing with things in a fleshly manner. No, what do you do? You get together and you work through these things as you each seek the mind of Christ and you guard against self-minded conceit which exalts you and tears down another. And where you see it, you repent and you get others to help you. See, that's, there, if we're going to be steadfast and not turn away from Christ, there has to be unity here in this church. Not mean we all dress the same way and we all do the same things, but that when it comes to issues of opinion, we seek to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. If you want to be at steadfast, let me just say it this way. If you want to be steadfast in the faith, then earnestly pursue loving the brothers and sisters within the local church. And there's a sense in which we all have to help each other in this way. We ought to be so engaged in the lives of the local church that we are helping one another in our unity and love for one another. We uh, earnestly pursue love one for another. And if you want to know what that looks like, just read 1 Corinthians 13. Apply that here, and you know what will happen. There will become, we will be concrete, we will be cemented in our steadfastness for Christ. That's what happens in a united church. First essential element, unity in the church. Second essential element is rejoicing in the Lord, verse 4. The subject of joy just keeps coming up in this epistle. 
And here again is this present imperative. He is calling for a continual, habitual practice of rejoicing in the Lord. I don't have a whole lot to say. Actually, I do have a whole lot to say, but I'm going to try not to say a whole lot about this other than to say, notice this joy, this celebration of contentment is not in circumstances, but in the Lord. So much that he says, I I say it again, rejoice. How do you rejoice? You rejoice in the Lord. Get your joy... Get the basis or the foundation for your uh, uh, contentment from the Lord. What does that mean? Let's just get really, really practical. Rejoice. Make the theme of your joy Jesus Christ. Philippians 3, 3. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God... And glory in Christ Jesus. Make the person and work of Jesus the the center of your joy. Rejoicing in the Lord means rejoicing in Jesus. Rejoicing in the Lord would mean rejoicing in his church. Do you see how Paul talks about the church in chapter 4 verse 1? He says, you're my joy and my crown. When he looks at others, he looks at them with just this sparkle, man, this twinkle in his eye. That's how you ought to think about the church. My son got engaged this week. Bought the ring. He's not here, so I'll I'll tell you. He bought the ring, and he said, Dad, i got to ask her now. And man, something was wrong with that boy. His eyes were all glassed over. Something was different because she is just the joy and the crown of his life. That's, you ought to look at the church the way that my son looks at Hannah. His church. You, you rejoice in the Lord by rejoicing in Jesus, by rejoicing in his church, by rejoicing in his salvation. Isaiah 61.10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God. Why? For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Just think about that. You robed in the righteousness of Christ. That's your joy. You rejoice in his provision. Deuteronomy 26.11, you shall rejoice in all the good that the Lord your God has given you. You rejoice in his service. I thank Jesus Christ who counted me worthy, putting me into the ministry. 1 Timothy 1.12. You rejoice in his goodness. 2 Chronicles 6.41, let your saints rejoice in your goodness. You rejoice in your hope of eternal glory. Romans 5.2, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That's what it means to rejoice in the Lord. But I tell you, when I see that phrase, rejoice in the Lord, one thing comes to my mind. Rejoice in the Lord. When I see that word Lord, I don't think about some puny, pansy deity. I think about a God who is large and in charge. I think about a God who is who is in control. And that, my friends, is really central to Christian joy. There is nothing, listen, 
Nothing and no one that can frustrate the plan of God. Nothing and no one that can hinder the power of God. He is in control of everything. Even my suffering and my heartache, my hurts and my trials, my temptations. What Paul is calling for here is that these believers there in Philippi would rejoice in the Lord who has so sovereignly ordained their salvation that he intervenes supernaturally to bring the message of the gospel All the way from across the Aegean Sea, when the Apostle Paul saw a vision of a man from Macedonia, rejoice in that Lord who shook the jailhouse that night and brought the jailer to faith in Jesus Christ, which is the greater miracle. Rejoice in him that he has everything in his control. And there are things that are happening in your life, I understand that, that you don't understand and I don't understand. But I can say that he's in control. Be content with that. That will make for stability. That will breed steadfastness. You might be going through the ringer right now, and there are things going on in your life that make absolutely no sense to you whatsoever, and it brought you furthermore great pain and agony. But I'm telling you, don't turn from Christ. Instead, rejoice that your name is written in glory. Rejoice that your Savior has taken your place and that you will never face the wrath of God, one iota of the wrath of God. Rejoice in the privilege of being part of the family of God. Rejoice in the privilege of drinking in the rich blessings of his presence through the activity of the Holy Spirit among us. Rejoice, my dear friend. Be content in the fact that he is in control. He really is. If there's going to be steadfastness in your life and in our church, there really has to be rejoicing. We need to make a practice of getting our eyes off of ourselves and everyone else and getting them on Christ who's seated on the throne. There has to be unity in the church. There has to be rejoicing in your life, rejoicing in the Lord. Thirdly, the third element, essential element is this. There must be gentleness in your life. Look at verse 5. This might be difficult. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. This is practical, really. It's difficult, but practical. The word reasonableness here, it could be called gentleness. It's, It's referring to a gracious charity. It is a forbearance that endures mistreatment without retaliation. It is charity towards the faults of others. You know anybody who has faults? Hmm. John MacArthur said spiritual stability requires, listen, learning to accept less than you think you might be due. That's this word. Let everyone know. Let everyone, let your gentleness, let your reasonableness be made known to everyone. Means that everyone who is in contact with you ought to come to know or understand the gentleness of your heart. The fact that you willingly and joyfully accept less than what you think you deserve. Now, how... Does that contribute to my steadfastness? How does that contribute to my stability? Well, the person who accepts less than what they think they deserve isn't the kind of person who gets heated about things. 
He isn't the kind of person who gets all worked up and in a huff and then says something like, that's it, I quit. Right? That's how this keeps you stable. You, you learn to accept more or less than you think you deserve. Why? But I could ask why, or I could also ask how. Because we all want to know, how do we get there? Well, look with the next part. The Lord is near. Now, that could be a reference to the rapture. The Lord is near, and brothers and sisters, He is bringing His reward with Him. So you and I can take being shortchanged here if I know that the Lord is coming, bringing His reward. If I'm going to be gentle, reasonable, graciously charitable and forbearing within the church, I've got to know that the Lord is near. He's coming. He's close. He's watching. Or it could be a reminder of the truth that we learned in Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Those are the kind of people who are close to the Lord. Those are the kind of people who are close to the Lord. The Lord isn't close to those who go around harping about themselves. The Lord is not close to those who go about complaining that they didn't get what was coming to them. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted, the crushed in spirit. That's who he's close to. You're going to be known as that guy. Man, that guy's always walking around taking less than what he thinks he deserves. And he's content because he knows that the Lord is near. And there's just this calm contentedness about his life. You want to, get, you want to be spiritually stable? You can't be blowing up at everything that happens in your life. You just can't. And what what will keep you from that is recognizing the the, the closeness, the nearness of the Lord. Whether you think that he's he's right at the door getting ready to come to you or that he's close to you and, and, and there with you in fellowship, you can't have this short fuse going around blowing up every time something bad happens in your life. All right? And I'm not yelling. Right? I, I probably am, but I'm not. I don't mean it. I'm whispering on the inside. All right, there's, you, you see what he's got to be here. There, there's got to be unity in the church and rejoicing in the Lord and gentleness in your life. And then fifthly, there's got to be peace in your heart. That previous one fits so well with this next element or this next essential in verses 6 through 7. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. Peace in your heart. You see what he's talking about here? He's talking about worry. That's exactly what's on his mind. Worry. Anxiety. Man. We are a society where we, we, are, we, we just have a complex as a society, don't we? Worry, anxiety, it's everywhere. And there aren't many things that will make you more spiritually unstable than that. Corey Ten Boom once said, Worry doesn't empty tomorrow of sorrow, but it empties today of strength. Well, how do you handle worry? How do you handle anxiety? We all know what worry is. This isn't rocket science here. I don't need to explain that to you. You deal with it all the time. Worry, anxiety. How do you handle that? Well, he says prayer. I had a a mentor in college. He said, here's what this means. Worry about nothing. Pray about everything. But I want you to notice something. The emphasis in verse 6 is not necessarily on the prayer part. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. The word prayer is just broad and general. The word supplication refers to specific requests. 
The emphasis here is, in whatever prayer you're praying, do it with thanksgiving. That's how you beat worry. That's how you deal with anxiety. Whatever prayer you're praying, make your requests with thanksgiving. All of it is to be done with thanksgiving. You're not making these requests with complaining. You're not making these requests with commanding, but you're making your requests with thanksgiving. One commentator said it is a true accompaniment. It is an important accompaniment of true prayer. What is what? The recalling of God's goodness and mercy will save us from the many pitfalls which await the ungrateful soul. Don't forget to whom you are praying. (laughs) Think about this. You are praying, you are making requests before the great creator of the universe and the one who sustains everything. Oh, by the way, he is also your father in heaven. And that's something that ought to generate thanksgiving. Too many of us shut down our minds when our lips begin moving in prayer. And that's not good. You need to be thoughtful about the God to whom you are praying. And you know what God promises? He promises that he will grant you a sovereign protection of heart and mind. Now, not, probably not necessarily two different parts, but the idea here is the inner self, emotionally and mentally, your heart and mind. You can trust him with your emotions and you can trust him with your, 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 your mind. That's exactly what happens when it is, what, 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 what is attacked in anxiety, emotionally and mentally. You become emotionally and mentally vulnerable in the midst of anxiety, in the midst of worry. So what, what, are, what things are troubling you today? What worries have you come here today? We've all come. We are much labored with many worries. Well, what do I say to you? I say the same thing that we've learned, we've known for all these years. Take it to the Lord in prayer. And I started thinking about this personally. What's that sound like? To take it to the Lord in prayer. Maybe you've come concerned over financial strains. Take it to the Lord in prayer with thanksgiving, which sound like this, O Lord, I'm coming to you today with gratitude in my heart because you've told me that you know my needs before I ask. And I'm so grateful, Holy Father, that you see such so that your eyes are not closed to my plight. Oh, Father, I'm thankful that you've given me the ability and even right now to come before you and to ask you, supply my needs. What are you worried over today? Are you worried over an unsaved husband? Are you worried over a a wayward child? Let your request be made known to God. And I would pray like this, Father, thank you that you're my Father in heaven. And thank you for the privilege of being rightly related to you through the Lord Jesus Christ. And thank you for Jesus Christ who bore the penalty of my sin when he freely offered himself on the cross of Calvary. And thank you that he is sitting there at your right hand at this very moment. And because he's there, you know that I am his. And thank you, gracious Father, for sending your spirit to indwell me so that he is marking me out as yours and gifting me to serve your body, even now bearing with my spirit in this prayer. And I thank you for my child, whom you've ordained to be given to me, that I might be a father to them in some small way, as you are to me. And I thank you that I can come to you now and ask you to work in their heart as you once worked in mine. 
And I thank you, Father, for your promise that you will never leave me or forsake me and that you always do what is right and just in your sight. So I ask you with all of this gratitude in my heart that you might be gracious to bring the message of the gospel to bear on my child for your eternal glory. I trust you with this. Amen. Let your requests be made known to God with thanksgiving. Fifth element or essential for stability is godliness in your thinking. For standing firm in these days, you really need to be godly in your thinking. There's one main verb in verse 8, but it doesn't come until the end of the verse. You see it there? Think about these things. The Greek here is a command. It means to consider, to calculate, to evaluate. He's talking about the mind. You need to know that you are not going to be steadfast, that you're not going to be stable in the faith. You're not going to be steadfast for Christ. You're not going to be steadfast against the devil and in spite of false teachers or in your spiritual freedom or for the gospel or steadfast in the Lord unless you learn to direct your thinking toward godly virtue. Quite frankly, you have got to become a thinker. And I'm not talking about somebody who's just a philosopher who just sits around and dawdles in their mind. I'm talking about you need to understand something. Your mind is a muscle, and it's got to be exercised. You have to exercise your mind by setting your mind on that which is filled with godly virtue. You need to exercise your mind with godliness. What is godliness? Godliness is, a, is living as if God exists. So why ungodliness, what is ungodly? Ungodliness is living as if God does not exist. Godliness is living as if God does exist. Living in God's presence. That's godliness. You and I need to learn to set our minds on godly things. That's to have the existence and glory of God as central in your thinking. If you're a mechanic, then God is the, at the center of your mind when you're thinking about mechanical things. If you're a musician, God is at the center of your thinking on timing and notes and pitches. If, if you're an educator, God is at the center of your thinking on educational principles and policies. If you're a mathematician, God help you. If you're a mathematician, God is at the center of your thinking on equations. And if you're a computer programmer, God is at the center of your thinking on the intricacies of code. If you're a salesman, God is at the center of your sales pitch. If you're a homemaker, God is at the center of your thinking about how you tackle the day to care for your home. The Apostle Paul is calling us to fill our minds with things that are consistent with eight characteristics. What are they? Let me just go quickly. Things that are true, that which is truth. Now, you know that all truth is God's truth. There's nothing that is true that is true outside of God. Things that are true are true because God has made them true. But here we're called to fill our minds to meditate on that which is true. And I've got to tell you, it's got to begin with the word. Sanctify them by truth. Your word is truth. John 17, 17 says, learn to dwell on the word. Fill your minds with truth. Things that are honorable. That's 
things which are above the fray, things, things which are eternally worthwhile things, things that rise above our present earthly existence, which means things that are majestic and awe-inspiring. And you say, as a, as a young mother, you say, that's really hard for me to set my mind on things that are majestic and awe-inspiring when I am literally changing diapers all day long. Well, yeah, but listen... You're not thinking rightly about this. You see, you need to understand, Mom, that you are not changing diapers. You are caring for an image bearer of the Almighty God who was created by Him and for His eternal glory. And that will lift your thinking to eternal, awe-inspiring, majestic things. Things that are just. That are things that are which are in line with the righteousness of God or consistent with God's standard of righteousness. Things which are pure. Things that are free from defilements and lovely. Those things that are pleasing and attractive in God's sight. Commendable. Things that are highly thought of by God and godly people. Excellent. Highly virtuous things. Things that are worthy of praise. Of, filled with high and lofty things. I just want to be very pointed. Some of you are wasting your minds. Your mind has gotten flabby and loose and weak because you've not been exercising it or wasting it on things that are are, are not true. You've been wasting it on things that aren't honorable or just or pure or lovely or commendable or excellent. You might have the lyrics to Down to Deaf Leopard if you know who they are or you might be given to the latest meme or the somewhat cringeworthy joke. You might have that down pat. But what about these things? And you've got to plan for that. You've got to plan for and ponder on and pursue after these things which bear the marks or these characteristics. Otherwise, listen, when things get hard, when the going gets rough, and, and, and the attacks come, and sin knocks at your door, you are going to cave in. The Bible says, as a man thinks in his heart, what? So is he. Therefore, guard, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it flows all the issues of life. And where do you get these characteristics? You get it from the word. And number six. You need a life that's lived consistent with the word of God. Let me just be really quick here. Verse 9. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. It requires very little comment really. He's saying live your life in line with the truth that has been delivered to you. And, And we understand that that comes in the written word of God. But what's so interesting about what Paul says here is how he says it. You've received these things, but you've received them from me. In such a way that he could say, I have a followable life. You and I have the word of God, and we have the examples of godly men and women who've gone before you. I have been so helped over the years by reading biographies. And I'm not saying... We worship those people or hold them as a standard of perfection. I know they're all saying, you don't have to tell me that. But listen, when I see someone living a godly life of holiness who's like me, I look at them and say, I want to do what they did. And then, you know, that's one of the things that I tell people today. If a young man asks me, 
What is a secret to an enduring pastoral ministry in one local church for decades? I would say this. You have to preach to your heroes every week. Far more than those biographies that I've read of of those men and women of of ages gone past, far more impactful on my life has been the nitty-gritty getting down into the things of life daily with a church family who I can see, man, that guy follows Christ and that woman follows Christ. And yet they're not perfect. They're not all that. But they're going after Jesus and I'm going that way too. And you need a life that is lived consistently with the word of God. And you cannot do that in a vacuum. You cannot do that as a lone ranger. You've got to be going with a group of people, godly men and women, who are following hard after Christ. And the great thing is that as I follow you, others are going to follow me. And we're all following Christ. That's... That will give you spiritual stability and steadfastness in a day and age when they're dropping like flies. Let's pray.